If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. All set for your flight? Yep, I've got everything I need. Eye mask, neck pillow, T-Mobile, headphones. Wait, T-Mobile? You bet. Free in-flight Wi-Fi. 15% off all Hilton brands. I never go anywhere without T-Mobile. Same goes from a water bottle, chewing gum, nail clippers, okay, passport. Okay, I'm gonna leave you to it. Find out how you can experience travel better at T-Mobile.com slash travel. Qualifying plan required. Wi-Fi were available on select U.S. airlines. Deposit and Hilton honored membership required for 15% discount. Terms and conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by Heineken Silver. When you discover something you love, like a new podcast or beer, you have to tell everyone about it. So when you try new Heineken Silver, a world-class light beer with only 2.9 carbs and 95 calories, you'll want to tell the world how great it is. New Heineken Silver, the world-class light beer with all the taste, no bitter endings. Available at your local Heineken retailer or for delivery at heineken.com silver. Must be 21 plus to purchase. Enjoy Heineken responsibly. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Long before they had the vote, women were already campaigning for political change. Penning radical tracts, marching in protests, spreading revolutionary fervour and delivering rousing speeches at packed demonstrations. In her book, Uncontrollable Women, Nan Sloan looks at women's involvement in Britain's radical and reform movements from the time of the French Revolution in 1789 to the passing of the Great Reform Act in 1832. I spoke to her to find out more. Your book, it shares the stories of women in radical and reform movements between 1789 and 1832. To start us off, give us a sense of how women were involved in radical politics at this time. What was the range of activities that they got involved in? It varied across the period because the politics varied across the period and different groups of women were involved differently at different points. At the beginning of the period, of course, the French Revolution sort of 
kicks the story off, as it were, in 1789. And uh, everybody got involved in that. Everybody had an opinion about that. And of course, that included women as well as men. Later on, a working class reform movement, parliamentary reform movement developed and women were heavily involved in that. Women were involved in um, thinking about ideas around the development of what we would now think of as feminism, but they didn't because neither the thing nor the word existed at the time. And they, But they were also involved in things like Luddism and machine breaking and the challenges presented by the Industrial Revolution, the challenges presented by poverty. There is no activity that women were not involved in, but they had no political rights and so they were have never been seen as being proactive in those movements although they do sometimes feature as reactive i think the story that's often told about women in political history is is of suffrage women's suffrage but your book highlights that women as you say were involved in in much broader movements weren't they what were some of their primary concerns or the battles that they were fighting for working class women the the primary concern was the social and economic changes brought about by the Industrial Revolution, which had started before this period and continued long after it, but which brought huge changes for women, and not just changes in terms of work, but also changes in terms of family and societal issues and, of course, economic change. And at, in this period, the speed of the Industrial Revolution was so great that it was impacting women's lives to a, a very substantial degree, great change. And uh, from this, men, and therefore women, um, began to understand that they needed political reform. And some of them were inspired by the French Revolution, but others simply by looking around them and perceiving that the, all the power lay with the employers and the industrialists, and they had none. And so they... they uh, for working class women, issues arising out of those changes and that powerlessness. Middle class women were more interested in theoretical ideas, in women's position in society, but also recognisable issues around equality, but also around war, around peace. There was a big peace movement during the, the revolutionary and Napoleonic wars. But also in issues like uh, the anti-slavery movement, women were involved in all... There was even a campaign to abolish marriage, which, you know, it seems now to us very early for that kind of um, campaign to exist, but it did. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about the campaign to abolish marriage, because that, that's a really interesting one. Well, women were beginning to uh, question all kinds of things uh, around them. And one of the things they inevitably questioned was whether or not the structures within which they lived were the right ones. And marriage was a huge issue for women. It, um, uh, it, it They were effectively second-class citizens, if indeed they were citizens at all, under it. And so they did begin to question whether or not 
um, it was the right social structure for them to live in. And uh, one of the women towards the end of the period that I'm writing about, a woman called Anna Doyle Wheeler, was a co-author of a book which um, specifically questioned uh, marriage and indeed specifically came to the view that marriage was uh, a bad thing and that um, it trapped women uh, in a, a, a vicious cycle of powerlessness. Anna Doyle Wheeler is an interesting case there, isn't she? Because that view, that her political view there was very much shaped by her own life experience, wasn't yes, it? Yes, yes. She had a miserable marriage. She married very young at 15 and had 10 years of a, a very miserable, violent marriage with a, a husband who was drunk most of the time. <laughs> and she escaped, literally escaped uh, and, and ran away and went to France uh, went to London, developed radical friends. She wasn't born a radical. She was born into a sort of Irish ascendancy, uh, landed gentry, um, but she became a radical. She became a, an Owenite socialist. And uh, there, the book that she wrote with William Thompson, who, which is has an extremely long title, <laughs> which is re- usually known just as The Appeal, is one of the first books written with input from women about women's position. It's it's one of the earliest feminist texts, now almost entirely forgotten, but deserves to be resurrected and much more widely read and understood because she was a, a very, like many of the women in the book, a very courageous woman. So we have women like Anna Doyle Wheeler and Mary Wollstonecraft Uh, middle-class women penning these political tracts, but how else did women get involved in politics? Perhaps working-class women who may not have been, you know, able to sit down and write a long theory or treatise. Well, you say that, (laughs) but actually literacy levels amongst women were quite high at this point. They they, uh, declined in the Victorian age for various reasons they were quite high at this point but you're right that working class women tended not to sit down and write books but what we do see is the emergence of the first working class women's political organizations around the parliamentary reform movement after the end of the napoleonic wars and they certainly wrote speeches they wrote um, declarations, they wrote petitions, they uh, wrote all kinds of uh, documents, most of which are now, of course, lost because people didn't think them worth preserving. But luckily, we have newspaper reports of some of them, some of which are almost trustworthy. But they also organised themselves uh, around the political idea that there should be working class representation in Parliament not women's representation. That was just so far out of anybody's idea of what was re- what reality might look like that they, they were not suggesting that, but they were fighting for uh, parliamentary reform to allow working-class men to get into parliament. And they, in, in Yorkshire and Lancashire in particular, they organised themselves into female reform societies They appeared on public platforms and made political speeches at mass meetings. They were some of the first women to make political speeches to mixed audiences. Which movements in the broader reform movement were most welcoming to women and which were least welcoming? Oh, well, (laughs) oddly enough, 
the working class, I don't know why I say only enough, because in the context of the times, perhaps less odd than it seems to us now, but the working class reform movements were very welcoming to women because I think they saw that there was a, an opportunity in terms of publicity and so on. But but also, as always, there was an opportunity because women are quite good campaigners and, <laughs> as so often, uh, provide the nuts and bolts of a campaign organisation. But I think, too, people were coming out of a period in which society was organised around families and into a period in in the Victorian times when there was much more focus on the individual. And one of the things that working class people were still trying to, to square off was this transition. And so it seemed to them very natural that women should be involved in whatever they were involved in because it was a family enterprise. And this is a time at which votes belong, literally belonged to families and were inherited and traded and were part of marriage settlements in the in the um, families who did have access to the vote. And so there was there was nothing odd at the time about whole families being political together. But some movements were much less welcoming. The uh, anti-slavery movement, for instance, was very uncertain about whether or not women should be active in it. And William Wilberforce himself um, felt that it was against scripture for women to be collecting signatures for petitions. And so although we now think of the anti-slavery movement as being heavily influenced by women and, and indeed as being one of the Um, stepping stones towards the suffrage movement. In fact, despite the fact that women participated in it in large numbers, the men in it, the men leading it, were never quite sure they should be there at all. And what were some of the arguments put forward against women becoming involved in politics? What were people afraid might happen? I don't think they ever thought about it as specifically about what might happen because... The idea of women being involved in politics in the way that men were was so strange <laughs> and outside the the norm. You have to remember a tiny proportion of people um, were active in politics in the sense that we think of active political activism as, because hardly anybody had the right to vote. And we now are so focused on the right to vote as being the determinant of whether or not you're a participant in um, political activity that we find it quite hard to get away from that. In fact, I think for a lot of people, the position of women was a biblical given and um, that position was subordinate and they were very clear about that. The law reinforced that women did not have political rights, they didn't have legal rights, they didn't have economic rights. Uh, This was a time at which women who worked in factories, for instance, could still have their wages paid to their husbands, not to them. They didn't have control over their bodies. They didn't have control over where they lived. They didn't. They had no, literally no, no legal, economic, or social control over their lives. And so, the idea that women would participate in politics equally with men is a long way from people's experience, people's lived experience. And you have to remember, most women were brought up to believe that the position they held in society was divinely ordained and therefore correct. 
that is a difficult thing to get our heads around. As you say, we're so focused on the vote today that this this position that women were in, that they didn't have the vote, but in order to better their positions, they almost had to channel men's votes in the ways that they wanted. It, it's quite hard to place in terms of the way we think about p- political activism today. Yes, there's a, there's a lot of talk at the time about women's influence on men and women influencing men in how they use their votes, and that certainly did happen. Um, There were also, before the 1832 Reform Act, of course, the the Parliamentary Reform Act that was passed in that year, women who did themselves own votes. The uh, women were not prohibited from voting, although it was rare for them, actually. We, We don't know how many women actually did vote, but technically, legally, they could vote if they owned the right properties, and some women did. Uh, and there's a story I tell in the book of uh, a woman called Sophia Lawrence who basically owned the town of Ripon in Yorkshire. She owned all the qualified properties and so she owned the votes and so she decided who would, who the MPs would be. And uh, when uh, one of them became Chancellor of the Exchequer, he had to clear it with her before he accepted it. So there were women who were immensely powerful politically but they were very few and far between. And for most women, the accepted role was influencing husbands and fathers and sons, not having the power themselves. Something you said at the start of the conversation is really intriguing. And it's something that comes up in the foreword of your book, that some of these women, I guess you could describe as early feminists, but many of them were not. They were, you know, out there fighting for things that would improve the lives of women, but they didn't quite see it that way. And some of the things, uh, some of the opinions that they had were, you know, inexplicable to us or worse, deeply offensive. In terms of what's inexplicable, many working class women were opposed to birth control, which to us, it seems obvious that birth, birth control would lessen the number of births, which would make women's lives easier and so on and so forth. But they saw it as a middle-class plot to limit the numbers of working-class people and thus to control the working class. And so they were either on religious grounds or on political grounds opposed to it. And we find that extraordinary. We can't imagine anybody being actively opposed to birth control on the grounds that it would damage women. It would, you know, make it easier for men to abandon them. There would be more illegitimate births. Illegitimacy at the time was a very different legal status from now. So it, it's a complicated issue, but it's still a slight shock when you see women that you, you know, quite admire going, no. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. So partly what I wanted to do with this book is to open some windows to look through and say there are other things here and other interesting women that we can catch glimpses of. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match. With Indeed, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. 
Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Time flies. We blinked and 2024 is halfway over. What's something you've accomplished this year that you're proud of? Maybe you made it out of bed and to work every day. Or maybe you started shedding some old habits that were weighing you down. But even when you're making progress, life can feel like it's moving too fast. We can't slow time down, but we can give you a moment every week to hit pause, set intentions and reset. Therapy is a guaranteed time to check in on how you're feeling, what you want to do more of and what you want to change. Otherwise, it's easy to keep going through the motions without getting what you want out of life. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. You can start the sign-up process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Take a moment with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. You, you start the book in 1789, and there's a good reason for that, because it's essentially the high point of the age of revolution. So it's the time of the French Revolution. And, you know, change was in the air at this time in America, in France, in the Caribbean. How did that filter back through to Britain? And what did women see being offered to them in this age of revolution? Was there a sense that better things were in the water? Certainly at the beginning, um, there was huge upsurge of hope at the beginning and a feeling that if French people could break free of tyranny, then anybody could. So there was a lot of sympathy for the revolution, a lot of sympathy for its leaders, but also very little real experience of where revolution might go. And so they had a, a view that, that good things would come out of it. In the early days, the French Revolution was quite progressive in its legislation around women. It allowed women divorce on equal terms with men, which was almost unheard of. Um, it allowed daughters to inherit, also unheard of in France. Uh, there was a lot of revolutionary activity amongst women. But as the French Revolution went on, that was crushed. So there was a sort of withdrawal from the idea that equality might arise. There was never any question of allowing women to vote as part of the new French democracy. A lot of the texts that we now think as foundational texts of feminism that are written at this time are a reaction to what is happening in France or a reaction to the reaction in this country. So uh, Mary Wollstonecraft's Vindication of the Rights of Men and the Vindication of the Rights of Women are actually written in response to other texts or to other opinions and events uh, and are not sort of freestanding and independent of what is happening 
around her. Mary Wollstonecraft is probably one of the most familiar names in the book that people may have heard of. She's kind of gone down as a proto-feminist and an icon of women's rights, but did her writing have that much of an impact when it was written? It did, but different. it was perceived differently from how we, we now think of her as feminist. She was then thought of as revolutionary because there was no such thing as feminism as we understand it. And so it was impossible for people to see her in that light. People certainly thought that her ideas were dangerous and uh, she was regarded as being part of the, the radical element in society that that was going to lead to chaos and disruption. But people at the time knew a lot less about her personal life than we do now. And the judgments that were made about her after her death, about her having led a life so loose in its morals that she could not be read in polite society, is a is a later judgment about her. At the time, she was seen in the context of... Um, revolutionary and radical opinion, as were most other writers of her genre. So she was exceptional, I think, but in her time viewed from a slightly different perspective. And it's hard for us. I think it's very difficult now to get back into the mindset of people when the French Revolution actually happened. It was such a massive Event. It's hard to think of something comparable, perhaps the, the fall of the Berlin Wall. Or, but even then, uh, um, it, it, it looked to people as though it had the capacity to change society forever, which, of course, it did, but not always in ways they wanted. And so they saw people in that context. Of course, one of the, the cornerstone mo- moments of the reform movement was the Peterloo Massacre of 1819. I wonder if you could just give us a very brief precy of what happened there, but also women's involvement and women's experience on that day. The, uh, the uh, Peterloo was the, we think of as a one-off event, but actually it was the culmination of a long series of um, huge public meetings that the reform movement had been holding across the country, particularly in the north of England, but also in London, in Birmingham and in other places, on a weekly basis for some considerable time running up to. And it, it was supposed to be the, the the biggest of these monster meetings, as they called them. And the leaders of the reform movement were all there. It was expected to attract people from all over uh, Lancashire, which it did. But also there was an expectation that there could be violence at it. So this idea that people sometimes have that it was it was like a day out, um, some people certainly viewed it as that, but there was an expectation that there could be violence there. There had been other meetings where there were violence and where they, they had descended into brawls. There had been other meetings where the military had been present. There had been other meetings where they the local authorities had a habit of, of waiting until speakers began to speak and then arresting them while they were on the platform. So all the things that subsequently happened at Peterloo had already happened elsewhere. And so certainly people who were organising it and people who who were involved at what you might call the politically committed level of it, which included many women, knew that there was risk. 
and went there knowing that there was risk. There were also lots of other people who did go there for the day out. It was a sunny day. They weren't at work. Um, there's a, a story of a 16-year-old girl who, who went because she heard there was going to be music, which, you know, is both immediately relatable but also says how little music there must have been in her life. The magistrates in Manchester were um, determined that the meeting should not go ahead. The reformers were determined that it should. The uh, military uh, were in attendance. They had recruited large numbers of constables and uh, various people, not all of whom were sober, it has to be said. And they did exactly... Um, what had happened elsewhere, once the speakers began to speak, they went in and tried to arrest them. When they couldn't do that, things got out of hand, basically. And as we know, uh, there was what we now think of as the massacre at Peterloo, um, uh, armed soldiers, cavalrymen cutting down women and children and all the rest of it. And it was, a, it was a huge tragedy and it was very shocking. It was very shocking even to people who felt, you know, that the meeting shouldn't have gone ahead. It was still a shocking incident. Women were there as proactive participants, not just as victims. And we tend now, partly because the radical leaders wanted to spin it as, as the women were not threatening. They were, they were the helpless victims of the cavalry. But in fact, women were there in organised groups. Uh, the female reform societies had marched in, in, a, in bodies. They had deliberately been positioned around the platform. They had banners and caps of liberty that they were going to present to the speakers. But there were also women on the platform, some of whom were going to be themselves speakers at the meeting and so they were not not all the women there were there just for the day out they were there for political purposes they had a role in the day they had a role in the theater of the day and they were those women were specifically targeted because they were a thing out of place they were women speaking in public they were women standing up for themselves and their families, and they were targeted, disproportionate injuries amongst women. Four women were killed, but there were also some horrendous injuries to women because the cavalry in in particular were aiming for women's faces and breasts, and that's where the, most of the injuries were. So... Uh, there are every age has a different interpretation of Peterloo and has a different version of what happened there. But when you go back to the source material and read um, accounts of what happened, what you find is women in numbers that you don't anticipate and in roles that you don't anticipate. And where it's possible to name these and to identify what their roles were, I've told their stories in the book because I think they should be remembered for themselves and not just as an amorphous mass of women at Peterloo. I think that leads me on to our final question nicely, which is, as you say there, many of these women, most of them, the majority in this book, you wouldn't have heard of, even if you may have maybe fairly well versed in history. Uh, why do you think that is and what do you think we can do to better remember these women? Well, I think there are various reasons. I think some of them are, are the obvious one of history has largely been told by men about men 
often for men and uh so these women don't feature in the way that you would you would otherwise see and that uh one of the uh, effects of having more female historians and there are some brilliant ones around is that that they have you know, the good old phrase been begun to rescue women from the dustbin of history. We are often only capable of thinking of one thing at a time in terms of women's history. So we see the suffrage movement and that's what we understand. That's because the suffrage movement told its own story and so looms very large in our um, consciousness and our understanding. We don't know, for instance, and this, this is not in the book, but it is because it's too late, but the whole campaign for women's property rights predates the suffrage movement. And if women had not won that argument, it's difficult to see how the suffrage movement could have taken off um, because the vote depended on property. If women had no property, how could they vote? But there's also our uh, inability to understand that women could fight for rights as they saw them and not be feminist. So we're very obsessed with any active woman must be a feminist. And this is simply not the case. Women are all kinds of things, one of which is feminist. Uh, but the word didn't even exist at this period. It's hard to be something for which there are, is no word. And partly, I think, because some of the movements that they were involved in, uh, we we just don't think about. So the whole campaign for freedom of speech and freedom of thought although they are both still current debates, we're still talking about what does free speech mean? What, how, where are the boundaries of free speech? How, how entitled are you to offend everybody around you? Um, and, and should you be protected by the law or attacked by the law for, for doing that? Um, that is still with us, but we don't have any real consciousness of the history of that fight um, which has gone on for centuries. And some of the working class women in this book are the women involved in that fight who sacrificed a huge amount for their right to to say, I don't accept your religion and I don't accept the framework of the society you're requiring me to live in. So we, we forget our, our idea of history is very partial. We have a lot of great man history. We have very little move uh, history around movements, although that is improving. And uh, so partly what I wanted to do with this book is to open some windows to look through and say there are other things here and other interesting women that we can catch glimpses of. That was Nan Sloan. Her book, Uncontrollable Women, is out now, published by Bloomsbury. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. (laughs) 